1: It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. There are a few more famous opening lines in literature. The first paragraph of Charles Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities is packed with contrasting couplets. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. At first glance, Dickens continues the contrasts in his portrayal of the cities. Paris, the chaotic hotbed of revolution. London, the orderly safe haven. A tale can be told about two cities in today's America. Buckeye, Arizona, is having the best of times. It's the fastest-growing city in the nation. For Youngstown, Ohio, it may feel like the worst. Its population has been declining for decades. But in comparing Paris and London, Dickens was trying to emphasise their similarities to show that the revolutionary fervour that had erupted in the French capital was simmering just beneath the surface over the Channel. And in America, it's also more complex. Just as Youngstown is showing signs of recovery, there are limits to how far Buckeye can grow. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what makes American cities boom and bust? Since the founding of America, its people and its economy have moved steadily westwards and later southwards. Recently, too, people and businesses have flocked to places in Sunbelt States, while cities in America's old industrial heartland in the Midwest and the Northeast are struggling to hold on to residents and companies. This week on Checks and Balance, we're going to look at a city in each of these areas to try and understand what's behind these changing fortunes. With me to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, the Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fazman, who we've whisked away from the Intelligence, the Economist's Daily Podcast. Charlotte, how are you doing and what's happening in New York?
2: I'm well. I'm watching the events unfolding in Ukraine with continuing horror, though our colleagues are doing a really fantastic, fantastic job of covering it in the paper. I continue to think that our coverage is really among the best out there. And I've enjoyed talking with John Fazman on the intelligence.
1: John, how are you doing? How's daily podcasting treating you? You know, I've been really
3: busy because every weekday, I provide fresh perspectives on the events shaping your world. It takes a lot of time. But it's been it, it, it's been great. Uh, the intelligence team has been terrific. They've been very welcoming. I second Charlotte's view of our Ukraine coverage. It's been really good on the intelligence. One of the show's editors, Kim Gittleson, has been in touch with a young man in Kharkiv and We've been doing a regular series of dispatches with him about what life is like on the ground there under Russian bombardment. So it's really good to see you. I've missed you guys, but uh, I'm really enjoying my time at the intelligence.
1: Well, we've missed you too, of course, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. The good news is that though you're doing the intelligence every day, you'll be back with us on checks regularly. We'll make sure of that. I'm glad. Okay, let's get into today's subject. Our episode this week is based on a piece by our colleague Simon Rabinovich who had the idea to compare two cities heading in different directions to get a sense of America's economic geography. We'll talk about the shrinking city he chose, Youngstown, Ohio, in a moment. But before we get there, Charlotte, you talked to Simon about what he found in Buckeye, Arizona.
2: Yes, I spoke with Simon about Buckeye. Ohio is, of course, the Buckeye state, but Buckeye was named as such because Ohioans moved there and wanted to pay homage to their home state. So I asked Simon about what Buckeye is looking like these days and how its population is growing.
4: So Buckeye has been, you know, if you look over the past two decades, has consistently been the fastest growing or one of the fastest growing cities in America. Of course, starting from a very small base, starting from about 10,000 in the year 2000. uh, And today they count its population at about 110,000. And and there's just remarkable ambitions. They hope to eventually reach a population of about 1.5 million. For me, that was immediately... uh, striking and resonant because you know I had been a reporter in China for many years and so I'm used to these cities that are basically carved out of nothing uh, and then grow into metropolises overnight but obviously that's a bit more unusual uh, in the American context and so you know I arrived in Buckeye knowing the numbers, um, and, and having spoken to a few people about the big plans there, um, but the immediate impression when you arrive in downtown Bakai is relatively underwhelming in the sense that it feels like there's one main street and not much else. Uh, it, it smells like a farming town. You kind of have the whiffs of manure um, coming in from, from dairy farms. The biggest structure uh, in the downtown area is this 25-foot statue, um, a fiberglass statue of Hobo Joe. So this guy with his uh, pants pulled up by a rope belt that used to be, um, you know, know, part of a a restaurant chain in Arizona. uh, And and that's downtown Buckeye. But the real story is what's going on, you know, beyond that. So it's a a vast, vast area. It's 640 square miles. Um, So to put that in context, that's about 30 times the size of Manhattan. And they've divided that into these massive... Um, what they call master-planned communities, effectively subdivisions. There's 27 in all. Uh, And it's basically like an an archipelago of suburban developments. Uh, And they're just huge. The the biggest one right now is about to be built. It'll eventually house as many as 300,000 people. Um, And so it's kind of like a series of um, discrete communities or towns that are linked together under the Bacan Municipality.
2: How are they dealing with the fact that migration patterns seem to be bringing Americans from places that do have water in the Northeast and the upper Midwest to places that don't in the Sun Belt?
4: You know, it's not news that, that Arizona is short on water and that there's concerns about, uh, you know, the the scale of development there. Um, so already back in the 1980s, Arizona had had come up with... A restriction that basically said any place that's going to develop has to have an assured water supply for a hundred years for all the development that, it, that it's going to do. What happened is that in the 1990s that, that was beginning to be a cap on development and they came up with a sort of workaround, if you will, which is that developments can enroll in something called the Central Arizona Grand Water Replenishment District. Um, so that we just call the GRD for short, and what the GRD does is it allows a developer to enroll in the district, and 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 basically for a fee, the district assures that they will pump into the ground whatever is removed from it, and this way they'll be able to say you know the water is assured for the next 100 years, but there's there's two big problems with that you know one is that they're not actually pumping the groundwater into the specific place where it's being removed. They're pumping it into some part of of the GRD, which is an absolutely massive area. So it's not directly recharging the aquifers that are being directly impacted. And then the second thing is the GRD concept is predicated on there being a big available water supply for Arizona, which largely is derived from the Colorado River. Which of course now is in its twenty second year of drought. So there's fundamental questions about the sustainability, not just of, of Buckeye, but you know of all of these kinds of similar developments um, in Arizona uh, and really in the Colorado River Basin.
2: Given the constraints that you just described, the water constraints, why are so many people moving to Buckeye? What makes the planners think that they will be able to fill this massive development? Is there a uh, huge surge in in employment where it's a big booming jobs market, why would people move there?
4: So first of all, I mean, the planners are confident that they'll be able to address their water shortages. For people who are moving to Buckeye, I mean, there's a few different things that are appealing. Uh, and for people who are coming from the north, uh, they're, I guess, not too concerned about the water. What they like is the fact that Arizona is sunny and warm, especially in winter months. Uh, but there's a lot of people who are moving from from the immediate area near Buckeye. So in Phoenix, property prices are are very high, and Buckeye is a lot more affordable. But what you know, one of the striking things about Buckeye is that you go there and initially you think it's going to be one of these kind of Arizona retirement colonies. But in fact, the median age in Buckeye is about 34. That's four years lower. Than the median age nationally, so actually the biggest group in Buckeye right now are young people who are looking to get you know started on home ownership, uh, and they can get more space for less money in Buckeye um, than they can in Phoenix or um, you know in places like California if they're coming from there. Although the initial attraction was really kind of property based, you know the town wants to get to a point where it does really have a, a sustainable, strong local economy. So more, more than 90% of people who live in Buckeye, with jobs hold those jobs elsewhere. So they're commuting to places, especially like Phoenix. Um, but it's got to a tipping point now where because there is a big enough local population, they're really able to attract companies by saying, hey, look, at we've got this big local labor pool that would love to be able to work locally. And so, you know, what's interesting, and, and we've discussed this on the show previously, is that, you know, America right now is dealing with labor shortages up and down the country. But one of the big selling points for Buckeye to companies is there's a huge labor pool here. If you come here, you can tap into it very easily.
1: Charlotte, before we get to why Buckeye and other places like it are growing so fast, let's just establish where these fast-growing cities are. I mean, the Census Bureau produces a handy list of the cities that grew fastest between 2010 and 2020. And just what struck me about looking at that list is how dominant Texas in particular is. Texas, Arizona, Utah, it's all those southern western states, right?
2: That's right. It's been a huge surge. So Buckeye tops the list with 80% population growth from 2010 to 2020, but not too far behind you have Frisco, Texas, Conroe, Texas. There are a few other Texan cities on the list, McKinney, New Braunfels, but there's also some places just in the West Meridian, Idaho, Irvine, California that have seen population increases as well. But it's pretty notable just how many of these communities are in Texas. I agree with you.
3: And if you look at that next to the fastest growing metro areas, there are a couple in Florida, the villages and the Orlando area. What's notable about both Texas and Florida is they charge no income tax. So that, I think, is part of what makes them, in
1: addition to the climate, part of what makes them an attractive place to live. So, John, as you alluded to there, it seems that the magic formula here is low taxes, cheap housing, good weather, Right. I wonder if there's also something going on here that reflects the failure of planning laws, development laws in other cities. I mean, it was really interesting when Simon was talking there about why people are moving to Buckeye, that so many people who live there have jobs in Phoenix, right? I mean, if Phoenix were able to expand its housing supply, you might not need Buckeye. Not that there's anything wrong with Buckeye. I don't have anything against the place. But but do you know what I mean? It seems like, in a sense, there's been a failure to make enough affordable housing available in places where people might want to live. And so you have to go somewhere else and and start afresh.
2: One thing that's striking as you look across the housing market now, where you've really seen this dramatic increase in home prices and a surge in rental prices as well, is whether there are comparisons to be made to the housing market prior to the recession. And there are important differences to keep in mind, largely that there are a few forces that are, that are driving this growth. People have a lot more money to spend on homes. The stock market, prior to this current crisis that we're in, the stock market had performed extraordinarily well. Interest rates were extremely low. Um, there were demographic changes with millennials aging into a time of their lives when they might want to have a bigger home, plus the pandemic prompting more demand for for people to have a bit more space. So all of those things are, I think, have a bit more runway or more sustainable. It doesn't have the fragility of the housing market prior to the crash. That doesn't mean that there won't be some kind of correction. I think that you will probably see house prices level off, but there are important differences that make this a different environment than in the run-up to two thousand eight.
1: John, how about the limits to growth in these cities? I mean, Simon touched there on the obvious one, the drought. Arizona is not just in the middle of a 20-year drought. By some estimates, it's in the middle of one of the worst droughts in the past millennium. That's an obvious one. Are there others too? I mean, it seems to me the concern in Arizona is not just water,
3: although that is a big concern. It's also rising temperatures, right? You already have five months of the year in Phoenix, where the average high is above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and three where it's above 100 degrees. I mean, are people going to want to live somewhere where there's a row of two weeks where the temperature doesn't get below 115 degrees? I think that could be one limit, just temperatures that make it unbearable. I know I've just given those temperatures in Fahrenheit, which may be useless to a lot of listeners outside the United States. By way of comparison, When I lived in Southeast Asia, I was there during a week when the average temperature was 117 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 47 degrees Celsius. It's just unbearably hot. I am not an urban planner. I don't know how you grow a city from 10,000 to 1.5 million that quickly, but it seems to me that it might become more unlivable much faster than other people think, especially if it is all being built around you know, the traditional sort of suburban tract housing with two cars and a, and a yard? When does traffic become unbearable? When does it become just an, an unpleasant place to live? So I think there are all sorts of limits aside from water, especially in cities that are that are in areas that are warm to hot right now.
2: I think we need to, John, you and I need to um, deliver our comments with a grain of salt that we're in. That the we most expensive the, city on we our- <laughs> Have made the choice yeah, exactly. to live in the Northeast. <laughs> yes, exactly. An extremely expensive place. Um, and we're both prone to being sunburned, yeah. so we look with horror at the uh, hot temperatures of Arizona. I mean, clearly people are voting with their feet, and I think that this isn't a trend that is going to reverse in the near future. So the question is how these cities adapt.
1: I feel that Sidney Powell would have something to say about people voting with their feet. OK, we'll find out about a city that turned its fortunes around in a moment. But first, though, the usual reminder to read or listen to everything The Economist does, you'll need a subscription – John, what did you particularly like? Which articles do you think were particularly powerful in this week's edition?
3: Well, I've been amazed generally at our Ukraine coverage. I really liked our leader this week about Vladimir Putin's sort of creeping Stalinization and what he's doing to Russia internally.
2: I agree. I really enjoyed also our colleague Vijay Vaitheeswaran, who's covering energy. He had uh, coverage coming out of this giant energy conference in Houston where all the oil bosses were there talking about energy security, which really hadn't been on the agenda for years. And now is all anyone can talk about. And uh, he got some really good insights on their view of the Biden administration's decision to embargo Russian oil.
1: There's a very good episode of Money Talks, our podcast on business and finance featuring Vijay on just that subject. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. Pittsburgh's tallest building didn't used to have a sign on it. The previous owners stamped their mark by placing vast columns on the outside of the 64-storey structure. They were made of steel, and when the U.S. Steel Tower opened downtown in 1971, it was America's tallest building outside of New York or Chicago, a proud emblem of the Steel City.
0: Steel, the nation
1: builder plays the leading role in the development of America. A combination of favourable geography, an abundance of natural resources, and engineering magnates like Andrew Carnegie, had made Pittsburgh the steel capital of America. Steel, the tool and cheap material out of which emerges an endless variety of products essential to modern life and progress. But then...
3: We're in an energy crisis now, and will be for some time to come. All we can do is face it, recognise it,
0: and meet the challenges it poses.
1: The energy crisis of the 1970s precipitated the decline of the steel industry. Pittsburgh, and in the nearby region, lost 120,000 jobs, about half of all those employed in manufacturing. Around 50,000 Pittsburghers left each year. It seemed like the city might fall into ruin, like the furnaces and mills that had powered its growth. Before we get started... um, In May 2009, White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs took to the podium for the daily briefing. The United
5: States will host the next G20 summit, September 24th through the 25th, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
1: (laughs) The guffaw of the press corps incredulous that Pittsburgh, of all places, would play host to the world's most powerful people, showed how far the city was perceived to have fallen.
4: Why Pittsburgh? Um,
1: But at the summit's conclusion, President Obama had a different story
5: to tell. Last night, uh, during the dinner that I had with world leaders, uh, so many of them commented on the fact that sometime in the past they had been to Pittsburgh, In some cases, it was 20 or 25 or 30 years ago. And coming back, they were so impressed with the revitalization of the city. Uh, A number of them remarked on the fact that uh, it pointed to uh, lessons that they could take away in revitalizing uh, manufacturing towns in their
0: home countries.
1: Pittsburgh had been a one-industry city. When that industry, steel, collapsed, it diversified. By 2009, its largest employers were healthcare and education, and it's since become a hub for robotics research. The city's revival was part organic and part good long-term planning. State and local officials provided investment, while universities and community and corporate leaders provided jobs and plans for growth. Pittsburgh has recovered, but it's also changed. Its shift from industrial powerhouse to tech hub pulled in clever graduates but gave little reason for the families who'd worked the furnaces for generations to move back. Even when a city recovers, the victims of its decline may not be so lucky. In 2008, a year before the G20, the US Steel Tower, now owned by a private equity firm, had a facelift. Four 20-foot letters were added to the top of the tower, UPMC, to represent the city's largest employer, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. The monument to the city's steel industry is now an emblem of healthcare research. But US Steel still has offices in the building, and visitors to downtown Pittsburgh might notice a rusty hue to the streets and buildings near the tower, stained by the oxidized metal. Pittsburgh will always be a steel city. John, Pittsburgh's in an interesting position now because it's gone from being a basket case, frankly, to being a sort of case study. Are there things that are repeatable from its success or is it just the case, a bit like with businesses, that each successful one is kind of sui generis? Are there things that other cities can do? Can they look at Pittsburgh and say, oh, we'll do more of that? Or is it just much harder than that suggests?
3: I mean, it seems to me there are things that are sui generis and things that are repeatable, right? One thing that Pittsburgh has going for it is that it is physically just a beautiful city and it's a very pleasant place to live. I love Pittsburgh. It's pleasant. It's interesting. Cost of living is fairly low. It also has a world-class university, which is Carnegie Mellon. I think it would be difficult for a city without a university of that caliber to do revitalization in quite the same way. But you also had a tremendous sense of mission among elected officials and private businesses and universities, they were working together to revitalize the city. So that part of it, I think the policy part of it is repeatable, but it will obviously it'll have to be tweaked to suit
1: each different city and their individual strengths. Charlotte, did you spend time in Pittsburgh when you were covering the Midwest? Or was it too far East for you?
2: Pittsburgh was right on the cusp. Um, I would debate with Rosemary Ward, our colleague who covers New York and the Northeast, who got to cover Pittsburgh. But I think that there are a few things worth noting. In Pittsburgh, what you saw, as John Fasman said, was a real investment around educational institutions and hospitals. So the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Carnegie Mellon, and that's something that is a strategy that has been replicated to some extent in other Industrial cities. So, people who think a lot about this talk about it as eds and meds that you want to go towards the colleges and the health centers. So, for instance, in Cleveland, you have the Cleveland Clinic, you have Case Western. In Minnesota, um, the Mayo Clinic has tried to promote a big ecosystem of innovation around it. And there is evidence that that kind of strategy has some success. So you have these big anchor institutions and you try to build around them, but it takes a lot of time. It takes real time to try to make these investments work. The process of going from um, innovation in a lab to a biotech startup is not a straight line. So. As strategies go, I think it's one of the more reliable ones, particularly compared with what cities used to do, which is splash out and spend a ton of money to try to attract a big employer or build a baseball stadium, giving huge tax breaks to a team in order to to do a physical infrastructure project. There's more evidence that building on kind of human capital and the innovative institutions that are in a city that that might have more success, but it still takes time.
1: Yes, Charlotte, the other thing that cities used to do was build conference centres. I'm not sure that works particularly well either as a strategy. Eds and meds does seem to work. I wonder for how long that will continue to be the case. But for now, it's working pretty well. The way that people talk about the Rust Belt in the Midwest is really out of date. I mean, there are lots of really successful Midwestern cities tend to be the bigger ones, right? Minneapolis, Chicago, Pittsburgh, places like that. I think the places we need to worry about are the medium and small-sized cities. I mean, I think what Pittsburgh has been able to do is not as easy for, say, Janesville, Wisconsin to do. All right, we'll be back in a moment to talk about a less famous Rust Belt city that was also hit by America's industrial decline.
0: Ready to pop the question?
1: Right. Charlotte, I'm going to hand the keys back to you because you're piloting this episode as a former Midwest correspondent. Where are we off to next?
2: Simon chose to highlight Youngstown, Ohio as a city to contrast with Buckeye. And when we spoke, I asked him why.
4: So I went to Youngstown because it's been in decline for a long time. And so I went in sort of expecting to see um, you know, boarded-up homes and a totally hollowed-out downtown core. Um, but, in fact, in the last number of years, it does feel like Youngstown has, has sort of touched the bottom, if you will. Um, you know, the pace of decline has actually started to slow a little bit, um, and, and there's been a lot of um, community-led efforts to clean up the city, to revitalize the city... And there's even sort of the beginnings of green shoots of industry returning to Youngstown. You know, for me, it was a really striking contrast with Buckeye, because there you've got this big population center that's sort of in search of an economy, in search of, you know, establishing a cohesive community. Youngstown is is in many ways a cohesive community, which is in search of kind of revitalizing its economy.
2: And Simon put me in touch with Ian Beniston, who is one of the community organizers trying to revitalize the city. He leads the Youngstown Neighborhood Development Corporation.
5: The city of Youngstown has the infrastructure, the built infrastructure uh, for 250,000 people uh, in the city proper. Today, we have about 60,000 people that live in the city. The peak population in the city was 170,000, so uh, development never materialized in some parts of the city despite the infrastructure being put in. But just to, again, kind of give you the picture, we have about a quarter of the people needed to uh, really adequately support our infrastructure and our, our city.
2: So this is something that cities in the Midwest have been talking about for a while, that there's too much infrastructure with too few people. This has been a problem in Detroit for a long time. So could you talk about the way that the Youngstown Development Neighborhood Corporation is trying to solve that problem? What are some of the steps that you can take to right-size the city?
5: The way we approach our work is really by targeting what we consider to be the neighborhoods in the middle in the city. So these aren't the most distressed parts of the city and uh, they're certainly um, not the best. They do have challenges. The idea being if we can do all those things, stabilizing the housing stock or renovating and demolishing abandoned and blighted housing, as well as commercial buildings, assisting homeowners, uh, fixing that core infrastructure, whether it be street trees, parks, sidewalks, and building upon assets that we can stabilize the populations in these neighborhoods, as well as begin to grow them over a period of time.
2: There's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right, in that to attract companies to Youngstown, you need skilled workers and you need people staying. And to convince people to stay, you need to have jobs available. So how do you think about that challenge?
5: The reality of the job market here is that there are jobs. In fact, there's thousands of them. The, the real challenge, uh, as I see it here in our city and region, is one of workforce and equipping people that are here with the requisite skills uh, to access what in many cases are good living wage jobs that are are still not filled. In our work specifically, you know, it's not as much about attracting big companies or workforce development as working with the small business owner, bringing those businesses that add vitality and uh, fill needs and increase quality of life in our, our neighborhoods.
2: What type of help are you seeing from the state and federal government for Youngstown, or what type of help would you like to see?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I would say the type of assistance that we receive from state government, from the federal government, it's it's not adequate. Um, Youngstown, like many cities across the industrial Midwest, Great Lakes region has uh, significant challenges that require real resources. But in addition to that, we have a lot of challenges that everywhere in the country does. You know, things like our our housing supply, despite having uh, vacant housing, we have a housing quality issue, we have a housing demand issue, we actually don't have enough quality housing for people that live here and people that want to come here. So, you know, I think there needs to be quite a bit of work Uh, done at the federal level in particular to help resource places like Youngstown and its peer communities. Everything from thinking about housing and how we get housing markets to, to move again so that we're creating more significant supply. But then, giving special attention to uh, the level of distress that's been caused by this historic population loss, because um, you know, cities like Youngstown in this part of the country have different needs than communities in the Sun Belt or on the coasts. Uh, um, so the policies and the resources will need to be very different as well.
2: Do you see a shift, though, because for a long time, these challenges that you've described have felt really intractable, but there have been more announcements recently of companies coming back to the Youngstown area and to Northeast Ohio, right, with um, investments in electric car manufacturing and some other big investments from car makers. Is that making a difference? Do you see some signs of recovery as there's more investment in American manufacturing in the region?
5: What I would say is I've definitely seen some changes in the energy and momentum in Youngstown. I mean, if you look at, for example, downtown Youngstown in our center city, uh, that's really transformed in the last 10 years or so. You have seen private investment and renovating historic buildings and developing new buildings around our university. Um, so there's definitely a positive energy here. Um, and there are people working to improve the city in terms of what it ultimately adds up to and you know, is it enough? I you know I'm not clear on that. But I do think there is a, a renewed energy and momentum.
1: John, as Charlotte and Ian were talking about there, right-sizing is really hard. I mean, all three of us have spent time reporting on Detroit, which is you know a city whose population continues to decline, though not quite as fast as it has been. And the experience there is that it's really hard to right-size a city, right? Because in some cases... People who live in some neighbourhoods that the city council decides need to be right-sized, they don't want to move. And so you end up with little islands of population. You don't have the infrastructure that can support them. This is a really hard thing to get right. And, and also, as Charlotte said, it's hard to do whilst um, attracting new people in, right? It's hard to go around knocking down bits of the city, making it smaller, whilst all the time saying, move to Youngstown. So, so what do you think the lessons are of, of places that have done this better? Yeah, I don't know. It seems to me it should be easier
3: to attract people to shrinking cities than it is. I mean, you have cheap housing, you've got a very hot labor market nationally. I guess getting people to want to move to these places is quite hard, maybe because they have a certain image of it in their mind. I think cities also have to be ready to you know, embrace creative destruction and let businesses that aren't doing so well fail so that new ones can come in. But of course that's much easier said than done. I mean, I wonder what Youngstown and and places like it that that were built around manufacturing, what they stand to gain from the shift in thinking on industrial policy that we're seeing nationally now.
2: I think that's a really interesting point. And the truth is that they stand to gain a lot. So to your prior comments, I think if you play devil's advocate, there's an argument to be made that the federal support for people in a place like Youngstown rather than the place of Youngstown itself is to help people move to where there's economic opportunities. So there's an argument to be made that economic policy should support people instead of simply places. That historically has not been an argument that politicians are particularly keen to make, particularly in swing states like Ohio and Michigan. What you see instead now I think is really interesting, which is that politicians of both parties recognize that they want to tap into that frustration that Americans have in some of these states and some of these cities, the feeling that they're being left behind. There's also a concurrent trend, which is that people feel like they are losing in in a grand competition with China, that America is too dependent on foreign supply chains, that we're losing our edge in innovation and in the critical supply chains for the future. And if you link these things together, both the desire to help people who are being left behind while advancing this great competition with China, what you get is an industrial policy strategy that the Biden administration has pushed, but that you've also seen bipartisan support for in Congress through this huge bill in the Senate and in the House uh, to advance subsidies for all kinds of things, including research, but also just plain old manufacturing. Elsewhere in Ohio, Intel has announced this big plant, this $20 billion semiconductor plant um, that would grow much bigger with the assistance of subsidies, supposedly from this bill. But I'd note that you already see car companies doing some of this already, that you see investment even without big federal intervention, General Motors has announced that it's going to invest $7 billion in high-tech car manufacturing, and that includes a big battery plant near Lansing. You see other companies investing in partnerships with battery companies elsewhere in the country. So there is more manufacturing going on. There is more reshoring going on. But the question is whether that will be enough to really revive all of these cities that have had problems with deindustrialization over the long term, I think it will probably help revive some of them, but it's not going to result in a turnaround across the board. Youngstown, though, might be one of the ones that really benefits.
3: I think you're right. I mean, I was looking at the list of the of the fastest shrinking metro areas from 2010 to 2020. Half of them are in West Virginia, and that's a state that really was set up around a resource that we've decided we're not using anymore. It's difficult to get things in and out of West Virginia, you know, the, the infrastructure is quite is entirely built around around coal. So I wonder, while you may see some revitalization of places like Youngstown and Lansing that have manufacturing infrastructure and are on interstates and are relatively easy to get in and out of, what happens to places built around built around a commodity that we've
1: decided we don't want? John, your point about West Virginia is a good one. I mean, I was looking at that list also, which has the fastest shrinking cities with a population over 50,000. So it excludes the really tiny places that can skew these kinds of lists. And the top one is Charleston, West Virginia, which I think you and I have both spent a bit of time in. Chuck Yeager Airport is one of my favorite airports in America. Though every time you land there, you worry that you might just go off the edge of the hill that it's um, it's built into. And then number 2 is Jackson, Mississippi, 3 Albany, Georgia, 4 Shreveport, Louisiana. So none of the top 4 are actually in the Midwest.
3: It's true they're not in the Midwest, but if you look at them, you know, Charleston and West Virginia generally were really built around coal. Albany, Georgia, I believe was built around around cotton in any way around farming. Shreveport had a huge role in the oil industry. All of these places were built around single industries.
1: Well, Charlotte, I feel that Simon concluded from his reporting, more or less, that in Buckeye, Arizona, things maybe aren't quite as great as they seem. Meanwhile, in Youngstown, Ohio, things aren't quite as bad as they seem. Is that, is that where you land on this also?
2: I think that the reason why migration patterns are fascinating is because they help distill a few big questions or provide a window into a few big questions, including growth, of climate change, industrial policy, economic rivalry uh, with different countries and how that plays out on a local level. So I think that the parties are really grappling with some of these big questions and trying to have a more coherent framework to explain their vision to voters. And while these conversations are happening at the national level, on a local level, you have people like Ian just trying to figure out on a day-to-day basis how to make their cities work.
3: There is, of course, the Springsteen principle, right, which is when Bruce Springsteen writes a song about your city, your city is in a lot of trouble. Youngstown
1: is a great song, but I mean, it's not a happy one. Buckeye, Arizona, will, on that principle, be hoping to never have a Springsteen song written about it. Right. Before I let the two of you go, I have a quiz for you. For aficionados of US state nicknames, this episode may have been a tiny bit confusing because we've been talking about Buckeye in Arizona, as well as a different city in Ohio, which is, of course, the Buckeye State. So here are a couple of questions about Ohio. Question one. Ohio calls itself the mother of presidents because seven presidents were born there. How many of them can you name? Oh, God.
2: This is a phasmon question through and through.
1: Oh, this is going to be
3: embarrassing. Taft, I think, was from Ohio. Man, William McKinley. I, my, my quiz muscles have atrophied. I feel like I'm missing someone more recently. I guess Eisenhower was from Michigan. There's a lot of 19th century ones. I think there are. Yeah, Taft, McKinley. Is Millard Fillmore from Ohio. Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, Andrew Johnson.
1: I don't know. Did I get any of those? You've definitely got three. Hayes was, uh-huh. Taft was, McKinley was. You'll miss it. The, probably the only one I would have got is as Ulysses S. Grant was born in Ohio, of That's course. Right. Um, and okay. other ones you may have named. Uh, you've got Hayes, got James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, uh, McKinley, Taft. You've got Warren Harding was the other one. That's right. Harding was the most recent so three out of seven, that's that's not bad going. Charlotte, you just opted out of that one.
2: Indeed, indeed.
1: But you've been very busy in this episode, so that's fine. Virginia also lays claim to being the mother of presidents as eight presidents were born there. You don't have to name them, so don't worry about that. Question two, what is unique about Ohio's state flag?
3: It's not a rectangle. Right, it's a triangle.
1: It's correct. It's the only state flag in the U.S., which isn't a rectangle. Instead, it's it, the shape is described as a swallowtail burgee, apparently, which is a shape more commonly seen on boats. It's essentially a triangle with an indented triangle kind of bitten out of it at the far end. I think you're going to have to Google it because there's no way my description can do it justice. But you're correct, Fasman. It's the only one that's not a rectangle. So I think that gives you four points out of an available eight. So that's that's a good score on your return to the quiz. Well done. What is the best state flag? Oh,
3: And why would you ever give any answer other than New Mexico? Why do you like New Mexico so much? It's beautiful. It's just, it's very simple, very elegant. It's a a yellow background with a red circle and four red lines extending out from the circles. I think it's supposed to uh, represent the state's Pueblo
1: and Spanish roots.
2: That is a pretty state flag. I think Alaska's state flag is pretty, pretty beautiful as well.
1: I'm partial to Hawaii's because it has the Union Jack in the top left corner. That's funny, it does. And just graphically, it's a very pleasing flag. Yeah. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks this week also to Simon Rabinovich. His piece with more of his reporting from Buckeye and Youngstown is available to subscribers online and in this week's paper. Thank you to our producer, Harriet Noble, and our sound engineer, Nicola Rolfast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.